0: You're listening to The Bunker New York live on RBMA Radio. Hello, you're listening to The Bunker New York on RBMA Radio. I'm your host, Brian Kasnick. Today we are joined by a very special guest, old friend of mine, Anthony Parasoli, who is a resident at Bergheim and part of the Ausgut booking roster. He also runs his own label in New York, The Corner. And also, is Deconstruct Music still active, Anthony? A little bit. A little bit. (laughs) (laughs) He's got a couple imprints. Um... Uh, know him from back in the day at Halcyon's record store and he's also a resident DJ here in New York at Output in Williamsburg so we're going to get right into the mix with Anthony he's going to be DJing for most of the two hours here, we're going to take a break in the middle for an interview as usual but right now let's get right into the mix this is The Bunker New York on RBMA Radio Red Bull Music Academy Radio, keep it locked. Listening to The Bunker New York on RBMA Radio. We're in the mix with Anthony Parasoli, taking us through some pretty serious techno. Uh, We're gonna have an interview with Anthony in 15, 20 minutes, and he's gonna take us through the show, so stay tuned. This is The Bunker New York on RBMA Radio.
1: He brought out, 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 he brought Ooh, okay.
0: Academy Radio. Hello, you're listening to The Bunker New York on RBMA Radio. We've been in the mix with Anthony Parasoli for the last hour. He's going to finish out the show too, but we're going to talk for a while in the meantime. Um, So, this was a you said this was mostly a corner related set, the corner being uh, your label.
2: Yes, sir. (laughs)
0: But not all tracks from... I mean, the last one we heard was a corner track, but those weren't all corner tracks, just like friends,
2: family. Yeah, totally. It was basically a friends and family kind of mix that's like kind of inspiring me right now, people that are just making killer music, and I just wanted to give them a platform to be heard. So after the last couple years
0: with a lot of releases, the corner went somewhat dark this year. You didn't really do anything uh what was the what was the uh reason for the blackout
2: on the label just time to regroup Um, it's a few things um i was touring quite a bit but it had nothing to do with that mainly it was uh just the industry and like kicking my ass you know slowing me down and delays and delays and delays and then the printing uh wasn't coming out the way i liked it and then I just wasn't happy with the quality so i kind of know that the infrastructure is kind of going through uh a bit of a change there's a lot of plants opening up so i just wanted the year to kind of like go through its transition level off and then you know come back and 2017 is going to be a really busy year for the corner
0: yeah i mean that's it's sometimes it's good to take some time off for that reason too just like build up some releases and come out strong and yeah we've uh we've suffered a lot of the problems you're talking about at the bunker this year as well i think we've been at we've pressed at three different plants this year i mean it's a a complete nightmare
2: yeah there's no other industry in the world that can operate and get away with the shenanigans that go on especially in 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 manufacturing yeah that's what i'm talking about in manufacturing it's like they get everything completely wrong sometimes and they're like oh okay and then they charge you and i'm like wait a second yeah. You got the printing wrong. You got the colors wrong. You got, you know, hole, You got where there's supposed to be holes cut out. Well, now there's there's no cutout. Like, all kinds of things. I, you know, it's supposed to be 140 grams. Well, now it's coming at me at 110. Like, everything completely different. And I've experienced all this stuff in many different plants. I think that part of the problem is perhaps that you have to be
0: somewhat... Crazy to open a pressing plant, right? Like to be in that industry, it's not like, it's not a field that like really sane, normal guys who like crush their jobs wanna do. It's, you kind of have to be kind of eccentric and a little weird just to even get into this field.
2: Yeah, I think uh, from out of experience and being in pressing plants, on the outside, it sounds like you're working in music. The reality is you're not, you're working with science and you're working with machinery right yeah it's manufacturing it's total it's complete manufacturing and then the only thing that is music related is when it comes off the the lathe or the or off the machine and you put it on just to hear it just you know if you hear any crackles but otherwise the entire process has nothing to do with the actual music so on the outside people that are going in think they're you know doing artistic stuff but the reality is it's hard work and you deal with a lot of cuckoos, man. Yeah, they're not getting into it
0: because they're really into manufacturing. Perhaps they're just into like, I like techno, I like records.
2: Yeah, like indie rock, and then they go work at a pressing plant, and they were like, "Wait a second, I gotta <laughs> sweep the dust." And <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, I've been in a lot of plants. It's hard
0: physical work to yeah, do man. this. So you you always press in the U.S. though, right? Uh,
2: negative. Oh, you don't? No, I I used to. And then I moved the operation to uh, Germany when U.S. engineering wasn't doing well. Yeah. And then German engineering wasn't doing well either. (laughs) (laughs) So that slowed me down as well. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but I'm basically Berlin-based with the uh, the label as far as uh, distribution with Diamonds and Pearls and uh, manufacturing at Rand.
0: So you're still you're still handling your own overseeing the manufacturing though.
2: Yeah, totally. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, I mean it's the only way I, that things can get done. I feel.
0: Yeah, I've I, well, I've I've always handled our like overseeing our manufacturing. I would feel I know I mean I have some friends who do it, but it's hard for me to imagine just like sending the PDFs and the waves to some distributor and then they're just gonna take care of it and your record's gonna come out.
2: Yeah, no, nah, I mean like. There's some stuff that's being done in America, so like Film Alpha still doing the mixing on all the releases, so that the corner keeps a certain sonic aesthetic. And then we send the mix downs to uh, Dietrich Schondermann. He does the cuts and he he cuts the lathe. And then what we do is we box it up and ship it to Europe, which is not really the best idea, but that's what I've been doing for the last like four releases and i've been happy with it i mean one time they opened it up and and the the, the plate cracked yeah but that's you know and you take a loss whatever it is what it is
0: yeah we do it the other way we've had uh dope plates and mastering and tim xavier cutting our lacquers and sending them over here yeah the
2: lacquer i mean it's like you know it could shift from dudes you know don't care you know and they're throwing it on the truck and it. You know just weather, the all weather, the weather of things yeah they're very they're very sensitive, and then when they sluggers. open it up in the, the you know you're gonna have a nice shattered plate <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful, about six hundred euros sitting in there, <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, thanks. that was a one of a kind thing that we have to make from scratch again uh so aside from the corner, you're involved with some other record labels, you've got uh deconstruct.
2: When I asked you about that off mic earlier, you said it's
0: kind of active.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's not really like a real operating record label. Never, never was. You know, it's more like we have a release. Let's put it out. You know, and and it's always been that way. And uh, sometimes we'll repress or, but it's not. There's no like pressure. There's no Facebook. There's no SoundCloud. There's, yeah, it's it's just just no. There's just no pressure. You know, it's like whatever we want to do when we want to do it. And then we do it. Like I just put out a, a deconstruct that was uh, October or November of last year. And yeah, that, and I did the production. It was uh, the the record's called Wildlife, and uh, that was the, that was you know only a couple of months ago.
0: And the I would say I mean the early releases on deconstruct are really I feel like what really started to put you on the map. Don't you think? Yeah, I mean I, I, cl- clearly for sure. Yeah. And that was, when was that? What year was the first release? 2007,
2: 2008. Right. Yeah, that was uh, Invisible Bitch Slap. And that was Levon, And uh, that kind of like instant success, sort of. It was like that record came out and it was just a big, big boom.
0: Yeah, I mean, you were you and I were living together in Brooklyn at that time. Yep. And I remember like all the DJs who were coming through, they'd be like, you're the... You did that record? Like Jan Kruger, Marcel Detman, everybody was coming through was like, what? Yeah. You yeah. live with the guy that did that? <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, that was that was a good time, man. Uh, yep, yeah, so full disclosure, me and Brian were roommates. <laughs> cats out the bag, there you go. Um, and that was a good time. Uh, yeah, man, I mean, Deconstruct was... Deconstruct and House and Home was like... It set the uh, infrastructure and the foundation for what I'm doing today.
0: Yeah, when I think of it now, I definitely wanted to. T- we did Anthony and I did a series of loft parties. We did like nine or ten of these yeah. in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Uh, wow. We really wanted to do more of a house music thing. It sounds ridiculous now in two thousand sixteen, but at the time we were just like, no one's doing house music in Brooklyn. Yeah, it was it just was barely happening.
2: Yeah, it was conceptually not just really house. So I think we wanted to do more techno-oriented artists that was playing that could play deep stuff and like expand their bag and that's why we booked guys like you know you remember santi santiago salazar yeah. we booked uh, uh Pole, huckabee you know it was really interesting bookings i i think and from what i re- i
0: mean it comes up all the time when i'm on the road now people ask if i've ever booked DJ Q and Fred P and I'm pretty sure that the house and homes we did with Q and Fred were like their I think their first gigs in the world outside of
2: out of the house dance house dance stuff downtown yeah I think you might be right and then I mean they did play bunker
0: yeah numerous a a whole bunch of times
2: podcasts I mean
0: around the time that house and home was happening is when the bunker uh went from Weekly New to York. monthly, and it got kind of too big for the back room. Just
2: the back room of Public Assembly. And when we opened the front room, we started doing more. I don't even think you were at Public Assembly yet. I think you were at the other one on Metropolitan. We, when when you started when we started it.
0: No, we moved to Public Assembly. Well, it was called Galapagos yeah.
2: in two thousand seven,
0: and then House and Home came a year later. And I think I don't know if it was the very first one, but it was one of the first couple ones. Was I think the first time you all played together it was, uh, just said. Fred P, DJ Q, and yourself—it might have been the very first party we did using the front room of Public Assembly. Yeah, that was but a good night. To, yeah,
2: it was great. Yeah. You, what was the name of that venue you were using on Metropolitan? It was called
0: uh, L- Lunar Lounge or Luna Lounge. Right. Luna Lounge, and that it's it's still there as Knitting Factory now. I don't think Luna Lounge lasted very long. Yeah. It was between Luna Lounge and. Galapagos and I went with Luna Lounge because they were willing to give it to me every Friday night, and I had months booked out, but then after a while being there, it was just kind of whack, and Galapagos wanted to do it, and yeah, that became our long-term home.
2: Yeah, that was dope. It was like a, a perfect room for the, the party.
0: Um what else was happening around that area when you were in my house well can we can we talk i think it was the very first time i booked detman it was the night when you met him yeah yeah. which i think was probably another in some ways pivotal moment for you because
2: uh hands down one of the without a doubt yeah i mean it's like um you guys picked him up at the airport right is that what happened and then uh, i was sitting on the couch and he came in and he's like I heard you have a record collection that I could go through. I was like, "What?" <laughs> yeah, I I was I
1: like, I "Who are you, you dude?"
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was
0: it was um pre uh, before everybody. It was really the first Oscar parties in New York at the Bunker and nobody had work permits yet. It was before USB. Yeah. So people from what I remember, he came with a computer and his plan was to Burn the CDs. But it was a couple hours before the party. He's like, Yeah, I'm just gonna burn CDs of everything I need. And I was like, I don't I don't think you actually have time for that. Yeah. But you can try. It's like my, I'm like, I have some records. My roommate has a lot of techno records you might want to go through and he he went with you back to your room to pick out records and
2: and then Yeah, we, we spent like, I think about three, four hours picked two bags of records, and I was like, you know, we're going through and pulling all kinds of stuff out and plan all kinds of different things, and as we're going through the records, I'm like, man you know, I'll pick something that was completely out the box, like a submission a record, Women Beat the Men. Beat the drums or whatever it's called, and I was like, "You play this, this is gonna burn the room down." You do this, oh, you do you that. Oh, you that for him. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, that and, was like
0: a moment. That was awesome. Yeah,
2: and every t- and I put all these records in, and he did it all on his own. He played all the tracks, and he took two bags to the club, and he played no CDs. He just played out of my record bag and just played like six hours or eight hour DJ set out of my my crate. That of I'm sure he knew most of the music. You know, because yeah. the dude comes from like... I mean, he was a buyer at Hardware, so I, and and also a distributor. So his history is really long in, you know, music. So it was easy for him. It was just, you know, he had his medium and he just... He rocked it, man. It was a great
0: night. Yeah, I totally remember when he played that Women Beat Their Men track, too. Like, right when he threw it on... Our friend JD Harrington, like I just remember, like he, because it's a loud sound system in the back room of public assembly, and
2: JD was way on the other side of the room, but I just heard JD go like, "Yeah, <laughs> yeah, man." I was like, I remember, it like it was yesterday. I'm pulling the records out of my wall, and I'm like, this record will burn the floor. You play this one, you play that one, and you just, you know, it was like a memory bank. The dude just went in there and tore it down. And I, if I remember correctly, it was
0: not too long after that that you and and Levon played your first gig
2: at so, Bergheim. With- yeah, I mean, so basically when the party was over and we were hanging out, he came up to me, he's like, I'm gonna bring you and Levon to Bergheim." And I was like, I mean, dude, I must have heard shit like this a million times, right? And I was like, <laughs> "Yeah,
1: yeah, 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 sure.
2: And then mm-hmm. a month later, a booking request came in, and he flown me and Levon. And not only did he, he book me and Levon, he made it a deconstruct night. We only had like one release, I think. But oh, that the was time. that was Levon's probably first time going over there to play he, too, right? First time in Bergheim, but uh, he right before that he went to Fabric already. Oh, okay, so he played Fabric, um, and then we went together. I remember that car ride to the airport. We were both shitting up pants. we were like oh my god this is really happening you know and there was traffic and we were freaking out and uh you know he and at that time it was way different so i gotta paint the picture because i don't think people can really grasp it Bergheim, then the bookings were really different the club used to shut down Sunday afternoon in in the big room, and it would only book a handful of DJs. I'm talking about like maybe three, four max. So the entire lineup was Marcel Detman, LeVon Vincent, and me in that order. I closed, LeVon played the middle, and Marcel opened. And it was a, you know, a label night deconstruct, and then the party would eventually move upstairs into Panorama Bar. Oh, yeah, I remember being there
0: when it was like that. Now it's the other way
2: around. Now it's the other way around. Shut it down. Everybody had to run up there. Right, and, and now it flip-flopped. And also, clearly, it's going 30-something hours now, yeah. right? regularly, you know? So, I mean, it's a completely different environment, and uh, it was so intense, and like, I'll never forget, man. Levon was so nervous, he went before me to the club. And then I was like, all right, I'm gonna meet a friend, and then we're gonna go together. A buddy of mine flown out for, for it. I walk up to the club and, I mean, never experienced anything like this before, you know, maybe Pasha or Limelight, but I, you know, when I played Pasha the first time in New York City, it wasn't quite like this. Yeah. You know, and they take you, you know, because you've played many times, but they take you in that back room, elevator door opens, you go upstairs, and then the elevator's in a DJ booth, and that was like, mine was completely blown, and I was like, (laughs) is there a bathroom? I think I'm going to poop myself.
0: I think pretty much everybody who plays at that club poops in that bathroom right before they go
2: on.
0: (laughs) It's got to be at least nine out
2: of ten. Oh man, I was like, this is too intense, but I I was cool, and you know, I think we had a really good set. And I mean, mean, clearly, we must have because I've been back many times thereafter, and Levon as well.
0: Right. So before, I think your relationship with MDR started before the Oscar thing, right? When did yeah yeah,
2: yeah. Um, I sent those records when I was living on Court Street. So I made those tracks in my apartment. And, uh, you know, Marcel's... The one thing, Marcel is a man of his word, right? So, you know, he says something, he does it. He said he's going to bring me to Bergheim. He brought me out. He said he was going to put these tracks out. He is. But, you know, he's a really busy artist. Yeah. And like... And like that release must have took two years from when he said, I'm going to, um, I took it. When he took it to the The time, tracks like, were done. The tracks were done and like they sat on his hard drive because he was just like touring. And I, I think that was like the time when he was exploding. It was all really this- starting to happen. Yeah, it was like really like gone to like another level and he's playing all the festivals and headlining everything. And I think it was like a little bit slower process. And I was patient. And honestly, I think the timing couldn't be better because... I was financially not ready to go full-time to, to be a DJ, you know, so like I'm still working and you know managing Con Edison. So I almost feel like in my world, in my picture, yeah of course I, I would have liked to be a DJ full-time and a producer full-time years and years ago, but the reality is my timing wasn't right and my timing was when it when it kind of occurred. Yeah, I've,
0: I've seen a lot of people jump that gun and quit their day job and it can be kind of a disaster it could be a disaster and then Just, if you don't you, you don't want to be like hoping that you get another couple gigs next month so you can pay your bills and that's i don't i think that's not good for artists no nah, I, I mean that kind of pressure
2: i don't recommend anybody going abroad or moving full-time or going dj full-time unless like you look at your calendar and your iCal is like booked five to six months in advance. If you don't have that many bookings in advance, yeah. you might as well not do it because, you know, it's unpredictable. You might have two, you know, two months worth, but you might, it might drastically fall off. And I had situations where I had a lot of bookings and then like, oh, I was like, this is really picking up. And I was still working at Con Edison and then like, you know, it was like desolate, you know, and there was no, yeah. no, it was just crickets.
0: Yeah. It, 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 it really takes something serious to get to the point where you're busy every single weekend with DJing and not worrying about it. Mm. Um, well, going, I feel like we kind of jumped right into more modern day, but going way back, um, you were born and raised in Brooklyn. Still live here, right? Yep. Uh, what neighborhood mm. were you were you raised in?
2: I grew up in the grave, it's like the Gravesend, Bath Beach area of Brooklyn, which is, I guess, on, if you're looking at a map, it's really kind of Coney Island. Right. Um yeah, I mean, growing up there really put a uh, you know, some hair on your chest in the 80s and 90s. <laughs> yeah. I, <can>. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: mean, says I grew up on like the East 50s and talks about how crazy New York was in the 80s and 90s and how she wasn't allowed to ride the subway and stuff, but growing up out there must have been
2: Yeah, I mean, really really something. It was quite a journey when you got on the train, man. I mean, When I used to go to school back in the day, I would always consider just walking because it was safer than getting on the train, you know, from Coney Island to like, I went to this one school called Lafayette and that was a disaster. And like a year and a half in at Lafayette, I was like, I gotta get out of here or I'm gonna get murdered. Like for real, that's how bad it was. Eventually they shut the school down. Um, And uh, that was like, you know, right in the heart of like that Coney Island, right in the middle. (laughs) And i was like you know what i'm gonna go and then my i put in for the utrecht and i went to the utrecht and that's where i finished my school and the utrecht was cool but you know there was like a lot of tension but it was still it was it was a lot easier to go to high school in the utrecht than than lafayette so how did you end up at
0: your first uh raves or i don't know if you went to raves first or were in a nightclub first how did that happen like what what brought you there
2: well i I mean this story's been kind of like done before but you know, growing up in, in Brooklyn, I was always into the electronic music, maybe not so much techno because we didn't even know what it was called yet, but just like house music and, you know, Good Life or, and you know, strictly rhythm records. And I was buying music uh, with my allowance at the record store. There used to be record stores all over the place. So there was one by my house. I would walk there. It was called Music Stop. And... Uh, you know, and I was buying music like 11 years old, 12 years old, 13 years old. Yeah. Non stop. Just buying records and, you know, and like just l- pretending that I was learning how to DJ, but I, I was, you know, really not. It was pretty terrible. <laughs> and so I already had the the knowledge of the music. And like I would record, you know, like Armand Van Helden used to be the late night DJ on 103.5. Uh, and then. I think David Morales was on 98.7, and I used to to record their their radio shows because David was a little bit earlier and then Amon was later. This was in the peak of Amon when he was making like The Witch Doctor doctor, and all the fire records that he was making in the early 90s. And I would make these mixtapes and then I would chop them up, take the commercials out, and then take my favorite stuff and then piece it together. You know, and I would, and, and that's how I started DJing. I was kind of like like basically learning how to edit without, right. without knowing it, you know? And then like a buddy of mine would do the same thing. His name is Robert and he lived not far from me. And he was like an, an aspiring DJ and he would do it. And then we would trade the tapes and I'm like, my tape's better than yours. <laughs> <laughs> and then from there, I, ha- I met a friend of mine. He was like, oh man, I'm going to Palladium, you know? And we were kind of like record shopping together and stuff like that. And I was like, all right, cool. I lied to my mom. I said I'm like having a slumber party at my at my boy's house, and me and Sean and a couple of friends. We all went to Palladium, and I was like 16, I think. And uh, the rest is history, man. That opened my mind, and it was never I was n- never a- the same again. Had <laughs> 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 to play <put> it, mildly. <laughs> and you you eventually ended up at Storm Rave, which I, I went to. Yeah, one on Cropsey Avenue and that was cool i i I enjoyed you know what adam and frankie was doing but truth be told i was really more into like nasa which was at vinyl right and i really liked tunnel tunnel was like my favorite club at the time right i liked tunnel more than you know i i worked at limelight when i was like 18 to like 20 something and i hated that club so when that club was like i would be there and i'd be at the parties as soon as the club was closed, I ran. Or like, as soon as they let me let me off, I would go to like another club. You know. <laughs> what, like, was, oh. what
0: was your job there?
2: I did a bunch of things. I did uh, security. I did bar back.ing I did all kinds of crap. Yeah. Why yeah. did you hate it? I just didn't like the environment of the club. The people that went was very bridge and tunnel. Even though it was supposed to be like the cool kids club, just I wasn't feeling it, man. I wasn't. I didn't like the music, except for on sundays when it was the gay party and sometimes it was like junior or peter rohoffer was playing
0: yeah i mean most of the time the people who think they are the cool kids are actually bridge and tunnel yeah totally they realize it or not even though they may not live in new jersey
2: yeah 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 totally (laughs) (laughs) truth be told (laughs) cats out the bag but there was tons of like really great venues that i liked to attend like i loved going out to like filter 14 and I loved um, like the cooler and uh, the other club um, that was on that same block. There was so many great venues. There was one upstairs. Was Bactoon was upstairs. Bactoon, yeah, cooler. that was yeah. it. Bactoon, the uh, Tronic Treatment. That was. I used to go every Monday for that. I loved that party. Man.
0: Yeah, I don't think I knew you then, but I was. That was like a regular for me. I mean, that was really one of the f- being like in New York, one of the only techno parties that really felt like it was happening when I started the bunker. Like that, yeah. and it was Monday night, so it wasn't.
2: But, but it was it's crowded, a different man. Kind of a,
0: yeah, no, it was popular, but it was a different kind of vibe because it was
2: Monday night. Yeah. The know. only thing I didn't like about Backtune was in the layout, in the middle how they had the, the DJ booth set up. Dance floor was in the middle, and then the bar was on the and other the, side. Yeah, so. and they had like these like little seating areas. I was like, man, if it was just more like a nightclub where you know everything was like
0: condensed in. Well, they never had a cabaret license or were never really a nightclub. That, that actually caused them a lot of problems. Then. I, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah they, <laughs> that was one of the infamous places I would go during the Giuliani crackdown where they, I think they actually had a neon sign that lit up. No dancing. Remember, they would I, come I around and tap that. you on the shoulder. No dancing. Like, come on. They're like, the, the cops keep coming in and writing us tickets for people dancing. They couldn't have
2: danced. I, I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't remember that. But yeah, I mean, to me, I just, I thought it was a club. I had no idea that they yeah. had no.
0: I think, I think Filter 14 was... That was proper. The only, like, properly licensed dance club on that block. But that's... I mean, that's where everything was happening then.
2: Yeah, the fil- Filter was... In, in my opinion, not that I know anything, <laughs> but in New York City right now, that's what's missing. Like, we have all the big rooms now, right? That's covered.
0: I know, and everybody's opening more big rooms. And everyone nobody's,
2: nobody's opening a proper... Like, Filter 14 was... An absolute proper m- mid-size to small-size room, you know, 400, 500 rammed in with like a sh- with a shoehorn, but you had a killer sound system. It was a GSA four-point stacks, for, you know, it was rotary mixer, rotary mixer, like it was mixer proper DJ booth, like it was proper, you know. And uh, there's nothing, like I mean, you know, Boss was cool, but it's not really a nightclub, you know, in my opinion. I think part I think that that partially
0: has to do with just uh, the economics of running a nightclub in New York now. Like it might be hard to pay a commercial rent with a small space. Yeah, I I'm mean, guessing. I always steer clear of opening a nightclub, but yeah. it seems like I don't. I don't know why either. I keep every I keep hearing about more and more. Some that have been announced and some that haven't. Nightclubs that are opening in New York. They're all big. They're yeah. like big to. Mega nobody's yeah. trying to open a 300 person club
2: in New York. I mean, I, I would think it'd be very successful, especially if you embrace Because there's a lot of talent here, right? So if you, you wrote this nice line of like embracing the talent having a lot of young aspiring DJs learn how to DJ on a proper DJ rig If you had a rig similar to filter 14 these kids would be so much better when they get out into the real environment You know and uh I really think it's really what's missing the most here. And, and and I think the level of the talent, even though they're amazing producers, would be even better DJs, you know, if they had that real experience on, like, real sound systems. That, playing on a real sound system the size of, like, you know, four-stack, I don't want to, like, use any club in particular, but that that's a difference. It's, it's, it's literally world difference from playing... Well, yeah, when you're playing on a real world-class
0: sound system, a lot of tracks that just wouldn't make sense at a smaller place suddenly makes sense i mean Bergheim being the most obvious example you can play something really minimal with just a killer baseline at berghain it'll just crush you play that in a bar
2: i mean <laughs> you know the sound systems man they're suspect although well, no, i've been to a few after parties and it seems like guys are stepping up the after hours game oh yeah in new york in new york yeah, yeah. There, it's
0: just like non-stop afters now if that's your
2: but with thing. really nice sound system it seems like the production went up quite a bit yeah you know it's kind of cool to see yeah i yeah. think there's a lot of talent here man i think it's really it's not that i'm i'm home enough to like go out enough and socialize because it's like i have to like you know prioritize my time right so it's like do i go to the studio or do i go to a party or do i do this whatever so that being said i still watch and i still see who's doing stuff and there's tons of great talent here man doing really cool music and you know you have a lot of kids really rocking and rolling right now man they're making noise for real
0: yeah they're hungry for it and there's yeah there's a ton of talent it's 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 really great and interesting to see huge difference from when i we started doing this a long time ago yeah
2: i mean like you know there's there's been like stepping stones you know it's like you always had the big dudes you know vega and all those guys and then like it took you know ed to kind of like make i think the industry realize in new york city that you can start a label on your own really ed was the first independent that wasn't like a mega you know underground quality and that kind of sprung board you know, and then you had you know Q and Fred, and everyone started their labels, right? And then us, and then from there, Ron started Lies, and then the rest is history, man. I mean, Lies really took off, and it, it connected it, with a whole new audience. A whole new We're audience still, still feeling the the
0: aftershocks of that, and I think will be for a long
2: time. I mean, he he changed. He he's it, it's not just a label; it's a lifestyle, right? So with Lies. It literally is a lifestyle now. If you go to, like, some really nice clothing stores, they're selling lies clothing. Like, Dover Street Market. Like, he has broke ground that is, like, kind of unheard of for a real, true underground record label. I mean, he went full out. He broke artists. He puts out amazing music. People can say what they want, but there's tons of great music that comes out regularly yeah. on live. Oh, no,
0: I agree. And he, and he keeps up a pace that, I mean, we both run record labels, so you know how... To, I, I literally don't understand how he does it. Yeah, it's, it's, I, it's I, I, do, I, I can't comprehend getting that many records out. Yeah,
2: it's gnarly, man. I don't know how he does it. <laughs> I'm like, yo, man, film me in on your secrets. <laughs> <laughs> I need some of that. See, Put some of that dust see, on me, bro. I want a pressing plan or something? <laughs> what the hell? How do you get all the clothes out? How do you get your designer to design? Ryan, you hear me? Stop <laughs> going to Wu-Tang stuff, and I need you to make me some stuff, dude. Stop going to Wu-Tang stuff. <laughs> dude, he's like, he's like Wu-Tang Flan, and he's at Wu-Tang yeah. Clan parties. He's making with, memes. <laughs> making memes, but he ain't got time for the corner. Yeah, Come on, Alano. Pick it up. oh man all right but yeah man so brian was once my my roommate that was he came to christmas eve
0: oh yeah the i oh i forgot about that we promised people we'd talk about that we did (laughs) it must have been 2008 or 9 we went to anthony's mother's house for the feast of the seven fishes which i'd never experienced before um i mean since then i've been to maria 909s for a full Brooklyn Italian meal a few times. I bet she does it right, too. If doing it right is making, like, eight times more food than your guests could possibly eat. Yeah, that's about right.
2: <laughs> that sounds about right. Way to go, Maria. <laughs> but I,
0: I, I distinctly remember sitting on your mom's couch at one point and not, not in a joking way, literally thinking to myself, I'm gonna die. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually gonna die at Anthony's mom's house from eating too much fish. Like, it was... And we were only... We had done, like... When you said seven fishes, I imagined seven courses, but one course was shrimp, and there are like six different kinds of shrimp. Yeah. Like that was just one of the seven fishes.
2: Yeah, my mom did... Lobster tails. Yeah, she did work, man. She's a, <laughs> she's quite a great cook and, you know, home-style Italian, but, uh, you know, she works really hard. She really she's a special person
0: yeah and you still get to do holiday i mean you live in brooklyn so i imagine you still do family holidays here
2: yeah yeah i mean like like this year i blocked thanksgiving and i made sure i'm home so uh yeah i mean like you know i'm i'm touring south america in that time but (laughs) i'm coming home for that and then uh i'm gonna do thanksgiving and then go right back to south america
0: wow yeah you mentioned you're playing south america a lot I mean, you're playing all over all the time. It's I'm, I'm proud of you. It's really nice to see.
2: Thanks, man. I'm trying to uh, fight the good fight. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, uh, thanks a lot for joining us today. We've got about 25 minutes left. We want to play a little more music?
2: Yes, We've sir. We've got...
0: Levon playing right now, so I imagine you can probably mix out of this one.
2: Yeah, right. I think I
0: I can handle this one. (laughs) You've heard this one before? I think I've heard this one before. Okay, you're listening to The Bunker, New York on RBMA Radio. I'm Brian Kasnick. We're here with Anthony Parasoli. Got 25 minutes left. He's gonna play us
2: some more music. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I appreciate it.
0: Red Bull Music Academy Radio. You're listening to The Bunker New York on RBMA Radio. Back in the mix with Anthony Parasoli. We've only got about five minutes left here. We'll be back in two weeks with a Sonic Groove special. We have Adam X and Orphex confirmed, possibly one more special Sonic Groove guest. Um, upcoming parties we've got uh, our BEMF event this Saturday at Good Room with Function and Silent Servant playing a nine hour set in the Good Room and Hot Mix, which is Mike Servito, Gunnar Haslam, and Justin Cudmore in the Bad Room. Uh, more info on that and all of our upcoming releases and parties at TheBunkerNY.com. Thanks for tuning in. Stay tuned for Todd Osborne up next. You're listening to The Bunker New York on RBMA Radio.